This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hey, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a general surgeon and chief medical officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital, DeSoto. Well, today we are so incredibly excited that we have Dr. Leslie Jureko from Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Jureko, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and your role there at Cleveland Clinic? Great. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this is a great time for all of you um, out there listening. So I'm Leslie Jureko. I'm a physician leader for the Cleveland Clinic. I lead safety, quality, and experience for um, the entire enterprise of the Cleveland Clinic. So all of our sites, both nationally and internationally. And if you ask what that means, I'd say safety is uh, looking at human performance and system performance and how we reliably uh, put those all together and prevent errors reaching our patients. For quality, we want to ensure we deliver the best possible outcomes every time to each patient. And for patient experience, we want to ensure that all of our patients have that seamless, empathetic journey. So those are the areas really the teams I lead focus on, um, and I love every day of it. Leslie, once again, thank you for being here. And and we love the Cleveland Clinic. And as a matter of fact, I was looking back a little bit earlier, uh, Dr. Yerian, she was on our sixth podcast, Skip. I mean, we were we're still rookies, but we were big time rookies back then, and we we had a, we had a great uh, a great conversation with uh, Lisa, and and also we love having physicians on the uh, on the podcast, and we are going to get into an article that you wrote, but before we get into that, we um, you know you started out as a, uh, a pediatric hospitalist, I think, uh, probably had no no idea that you were going to be where you are right now. And, and tell us a little, we love hearing about people's sure. people's journey into uh, into leadership in, in medicine and, and share that with us if you don't mind. Yeah, happy to. I'm glad you had Lisa on. She's a great, she's my peer at the Cleveland Clinic. She's a great, she taught me a lot about improvement methodologies and how to think about problem solving. So um, we all learn from each other, don't we? Um, so yeah, I still see patients as a pediatric hospitalist, um, believe it or not. We all, all of us at the clinic, um, pretty much besides just a couple of our leaders, uh, all still see patients. So a small amount of time, I still see patients in our, our children's hospital. But yeah, yeah, the role, uh, gosh, it's such an evolution of what, what, how you got to where you, you know, you are now and, and where that's going to take you. But really it was just seeing patients and not being, terribly satisfied when I left at the end of the day, wondering why it was so difficult, difficult for the patients, families, and the caregivers. And so I found myself just like wanting to fix all of this, you know, kind of the person that would stay after the shift was done and try to work out on a better handoff tool or try to work on team training with simulation. And that's what got me kind of started in it. And then the rest kind of went from there. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's funny how we end up where we are. You never know where where it's going to take you, but in healthcare and and in as a matter of fact in in all sectors of business, you know here here lately over the last few years we've heard about HROs or high reliability organizations, and I, I think that if you went to any any health system and said, would you like to be an HRO, I, the the obvious answer would be yes, we we do. And and you wrote a you wrote a great article that I really enjoyed and it's it's the ten leadership mindsets of high reliability organizations and and it's what we'd like to do today 
we'd like to just spend a little time talking about those those mindsets. And, and you know, we um, you know it all starts at the top. And you know, we can't we can't expect the people below us to to perform in a high reliable fashion if if we ourselves as leaders don't uh, don't have those uh, that that mindset. And and could you spend a little bit of time talking about those? Sure. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I think we can talk about, too, if there's even a healthcare organization out there that's highly reliable. I, I sure. argue there's not. I think there's still too much harm in what in, in preventable harm in the area we work. Um, and I think we're getting better. But uh, I think the pandemic showed us that we're not resilient enough to kind of absorb all the changes that come at us. Um, so, when I think about leadership and high reliability, um, and I, you know, the article, if you have a chance to read it, and I hope all of our listeners do, it's very short if that helps you want to go out and read it. It is a short read. But really, it was kind of those 10 things that I learned from reading or hearing from others. So really, none, none of it is terribly original, but it, it definitely came from others in the field that I kept finding myself going back to. And either it was wishing my own leaders acted um, and used these behaviors, or it was wishing I would have used some of these behaviors in situations I was in. So absolutely starts with leadership, setting the tone, beating the drum every day. And that's why this article was actually pretty easy to come to write, because it was one of those I always kind of went back to mentally, but never put it down mm -hmm. on me. So I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. And, and, and ver the very first one is you say that healthcare is a dangerous place to work. And, you know, I started thinking about that. And, and that's something that I think I'd always taken for granted that, that where we, you know, the workplace is, is a safe place to work. And I never really focused on the safety of our team members and the safety of our employees and how, you know, we can't expect our team members to keep our patients safe if we're not keeping them safe. Uh, expand on that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And we talk about physical and psychological safety of our healthcare workforce. And uh, I mentioned it's a precondition, as you, as you said, to patient safety. Your employees have to feel, caregivers have to feel that they're in a safe environment to bring their whole selves to work, to care journey for the patients. There's just no other way to do it. If they're fearful, if they're scared, they're not going to be thinking and using those right parts of their brain that we want them to use for critical thinking, for following those protocols, for speaking up. So it's really important. And, and I was taught um, throughout my kind of leadership journey, and I hear it now fairly frequently, is the folks building a hospital are safer than the folks inside a hospital. So the construction workers out there building our hospitals are safer than those of us caring inside. And that to me was like, wow. I mean, name all the statistics. They say it's about six times um, uh, worse. We have six times more injuries than uh, kind of the average uh, industries in the U.S. So six times more. Um, it's pretty significant, yet I don't know that we actually have the mindset that it is. Like you mentioned, we we kind of think it's part of the job, don't we? <laughs> we think it's it's okay to run into the fire when everybody else isn't. And so that's some of the work I think all of us are trying to figure out with workplace violence on the rise, 
with just some of the exposures to chemicals, to uh, blood products, to other things that we constantly do. And it, is, it kind of feels like part of the job where it shouldn't be. We should have all those safety mechanisms in place. Yeah, and, you know, the la- for the last two years, we've had this thing called uh, COVID. And, you know, we, I'm, I'm a general surgeon, and, you know, we, we were just taught in training that you're supposed to have the attitude, let's just suck, suck it up and, and go. You know, you just you just get the work done. But, you know, burnout is real. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, we talk about the physical safety, but we also need, you know, the, the emotional and the psychological safety of our team members, how important that is, because it really takes a toll, uh, not only the team members, but the patients end up suffering because of that as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it absolutely does. Yeah. Number two is you say that complex systems have complex problems and require robust solutions. And, you know, healthcare, it is, a healthcare system is complex. And, and you talk about, you know, we always hear, you know, keep it simple, stupid, you know, make things simple. But, but you talk about the danger of, of actually oversimplifying things. Talk to us a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah, thanks. It's such a balance for all of us in either healthcare leadership or just in healthcare when we're talking with our patients is we want to simplify because we don't like the messiness, right? We want to have it all organized. And most of us in healthcare are kind of that type A mentality um, and and we want it clean. So our natural um, inclination is to somewhat oversimplify or simplify it. The minute we do that, though, and I've learned this over the years by having a lot of failures, is we don't get to the root causes when we're trying to solve a problem. And then we're solving the wrong problem. And oh, and then by the way, the event happens again. And we wonder, why did that happen again? And well, it's because we oversimplified. And I see that um, not, not always just in kind of our root cause analysis or looking deeply for problems, but I see it um, with time constraints on us as leaders as well. It is so much easier for me to package something, oversimplify, simplify and think the front line can go and do it. Um, it, it, And that's where I get in trouble all the time as a leader. If I make decisions and and, and truly um, think that I have the right decision and simplify into a message that seems so clean. And where I found the antidote to, to not falling into that trap is to really remember that other principle, which is deference to expertise and go back to the experts and ask them. Because if I make wrong decisions, it's usually if I look back, it's because I didn't go back to the experts. So therefore I oversimplified. One of the things that makes sense, Dr. Dreco, I love when I read the article, this uh, uh, second um, you know, mindset, because what was ironic was I thought, well, these 10 mindsets are not independent, they're interdependent, just like a system, right? Mm-hmm. And what I see often in, in our efforts to make something simple, good people with good intentions, is they take a linear approach towards the, the problem versus a systemic approach. Do, mm-hmm. do you see that also? Yeah, you know where I uh, see that the most, you're, you're right on, Skip, is I see it the most with technology changes a lot. So we make one technology change and then five other things, quote unquote, break. 
Um, and it, it absolutely impacts our patients and our caregivers. So I see it all the time, that interdependencies of our systems with humans in the middle of that system as part of that system is so unique. And we are so complex in healthcare that we tend to forget in our change management all of those interdependencies. And we find out at the end, like, oh, no, we forgot about that. And look at the impact it has. Yeah, Skip is Skip works with uh, Dr. Edgar and Peter Shine, and and we've had we've had them on on the show talking and talking about socio technical systems. And I mean, healthcare is is probably the most complex socio socio tech technical system that you can have. Absolutely, and it's getting more and more. I mean, you turn around, and the next thing you know, you have a smart pump at the bedside. Well, in the ICU, you have ten smart pumps at that bedside, talking to the EMR but our humans are programming it and it's just for a safety leader. It absolutely keeps me up at night because the rigor around not only training, um, but detection and that thinking of when things are going off the path and bringing it back on, that's keep, that keeps me up at night with all our social technical interfaces. Absolutely. Um, The next point you make is that, that our patients, are part of the solutions to your difficult and complex issues. And and as I was reading that, I, I was I was thinking, you know, once again, as a surgeon, I, I we we normally don't like to spend a lot of time talking to our patients. Uh, but you always heard, you know, if if you would just let the patient talk and listen, they would tell you what's wrong with them. And and but we don't when we're trying to fix our our quality issues or our safety issues, we don't include a lot of we don't include our patients in being part of that solution. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. It certainly isn't natural for us to want to bring them in, is it? And um, but I bet if we looked back at all of our kind of the safety, the history of patient safety and improvement, I bet most of the issues we've had is because we the patient probably knew something was going wrong. And we didn't give them the ability to speak up, ask that question, question their medications. And if it's not the patient, the family for sure. Somebody usually in that unit, patient family unit, knew something wasn't right. Um, And if we had just opened that door for them to feel psychologically safe, to be part of the team, um, and to help us solve those problems and think differently out, I think we would have uh, improved patient safety much faster than we uh, at the rate we're doing it right now. But yeah, we definitely we have healthcare partners we bring in um, for to help us solve different um, problems. It was definitely challenging during the pandemic. We did a lot uh, virtually with them, but we try to get them right in, like to the gambo, as we say, and, and see it from through their eyes to understand it through their eyes and. Um, get their input. And some of them, we were just, we just had some rounding with us for workplace violence. And it was fascinating what they could see that we couldn't see because we're there every day. It's fascinating. Sure. That's great. Um, Next, you say that, that reactivity breeds fear and fear stalls progress. And and you're talking about reactivity from the leaders. and, And this one, this really hit home with me. Once again, I'm a fixer. You know, somebody has appendicitis or they have a ruptured diverticulitis. We want to get in there and fix it. So now my my natural tendency is when I hear about a problem, I Mm -hmm. want to go and take care of it. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, when they see you walking on the on the wards, they may say, uh oh, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, I'm not yep. the boss, but, you know, mm-hmm. the boss is mad. What, what What's he doing up here? Right. And, and sometimes the, be- the best the best thing to do you talk about is to stop and take a deep breath to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Mason, I so appreciate that you do go out on the floors and, and try to solve the problems. But it, and it's been a journey for me, too, because I'm definitely, a you know, get to the solution, solve the problem, go go fix it um, type of person. But I realized after responding of years of leading patient safety and quality, that response was actually creating a lot more fear. Um and a little bit goes back to that deference of expertise principle, but what the team feels is that they let you down. And when they see that one of the top leaders, um, you know, either visible or picking up the phone and calling with almost that attitude that should be curious to help the team, but comes off as what happened, what did you do, kind of that almost a punitive feel that really can shut down a culture absolutely can shut down the culture and there's probably reactive leadership and we've all been there is probably the one thing that um it creates real trust issues in an organization um because in a minute you can feel like someone doesn't trust you we've all been there when our boss you know picked up the phone and called us and started questioning us in a tone that you could tell they didn't trust us. And it just really fraction, er, uh, uh, fractures the relationship. And so we try to work on this. And I, I always kind of have a mental checklist. And, and what I started to put on top of that, just like you said, that first thing I do is just take a deep breath and go, all we need to do is support the patient, make sure they're okay, support the family that we're communicating with them at any moment, 24-7, that they have a way to talk with us. And this is when, you know, safety events happen and things don't go well. Support the caregivers involved. And that does not mean calling them, asking them what happened. It means calling them and asking them, how are you doing? Do you need a little time? Do you need a break? What do you need from us? Not asking what happened during the case or when they saw the patient. And that, if you do that well in the 24 hours, that's all your board boards want from you. You know, I always hear, well, we've got to communicate to the board. We've got to figure out what's going on. And actually, no, the board really just wants us to take care of the patient, the family, and the caregivers involved. And if they know that's going well, they will be satisfied until we get to the facts. Yeah, I, uh, in my lab coat, I don't, I don't keep a stethoscope in here anymore. I don't keep many things, but I do. Skip will recognize this. This is my, uh, yellow job relations card from the TWI Institute. And, and then the first thing you do is you get the facts. And uh, mm-hmm. so uh, Skip Skip teaches, well, a lot of people in our organization teaches the, the JR course, and, and it has helped me tremendously. Well, Dr. Jureko, I really liked what you said. It made me think of, a, there's a friend of ours by the name of uh, Rich Sheraton, and he's at uh, Menlo Industries in, in Michigan. But he has a, a phrase, he says, that fear does not make problems go away. Fear drives problems into hiding. Mm-hmm. And that's what I hear you saying. Absolutely. Um, and again, you cannot unlock your culture if you have that fear. And you can't get to improvement for sure because no one will want to lean in. <clears throat> Um, and then, and, and that kind of leads us into the, the, the next point you make is, is we need to stop blaming caregivers for system issues. And, and this is one that, that really hits home for us right now. And especially in the Southeast, I don't know if you, you've heard about the case at, at Vanderbilt, 
where the nurse was actually convicted in a, in a criminal court for a for a medical error, and and that that really has put a lot of people on edge, especially especially nurses and 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 all caregivers. Uh, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's been a, a point that we've all been uh, discussing. We sent an uh, internal memo, mem- memo out to our organization talking about uh, our just culture and psychologically psych- psychological safety and also the criminalization of a unintended medical error and the key is there it was it was unintended this was not a criminal and to to criminalize that error has set us back in so many things the one thing it has done is created this conversation right folks are having this conversation that you and I are having right now and saying that's just wrong we should not um, have medical errors, especially when there is system problems, which there was in that case for all all the details. We don't have all the details, but the details we know there were system issues with reliable reliable care around the Pixis um, and medication delivery. So being able to uh, criminalize somebody for that is really going to scare the community, the healthcare community now. And they want to know that we have their backs. And that's what Just Culture is about. We have your back. We're going to fairly look at what happened. We're not going to place blame, but we're going to have a methodology to ask deeper questions. And then when we learn what happened, we're going to support you. Because I will tell you, 99% of the time, I've seen a lot of cases, it's a system issue that doesn't involve that direct person making an intentional reason to harm somebody. That rarely happens. So for us to jump to blame, we are the ones not being accountable to our own leadership. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, Next, you talk about, you say, attention is the currency of leadership and and you know what what we as leaders and and what we focus on that's going to be mimicked by the people below us and you know i've got a bunch of i've got five kids and and through the years when when they they were doing something stupid or whatever i would ask my wife i'd say why why is he or she doing that and and of course she'd say well because he saw it, he or she saw you do it. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're exactly. just they're just doing what you do. But but how important is us as leaders to you know focus on the right things in order to to get our uh, our uh, team members to to follow us yeah. and, and to take our lead. It's it's absolutely important. And you made me laugh because I'm all, I'm the one that has my phone in hand and I'm scrolling through and I have two kids, twelve and eight. And I'm always get off your iPads, get off your iPads. But I got my phone in my hand. I mean, I know. Oh yeah, yeah. Mom's d- d- the behavior d- d- here, mom. Do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> exactly. So, um, absolutely. You know, I have to give a shout out to our CEO at Cleveland Clinic. You know, I I came into the organization two years ago, and I led safety quality experience at a, a Spectrum Health great healthcare system in, based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Now has spread across Michigan when they just integrated with Beaumont Health. And so learn a lot about leadership there and attention to kind of the currency of what you want to drive. And our CEO at the Cleveland Clinic, there is not a meeting that doesn't start with uh, safety. Every meeting of his starts with safety. He just had a board meeting, spent tons of time on safety, quality, patient experience. It's the foundation. He calls it the core tenets of their care. And if we get that right, everything else, he talks about the uh, uh, virtuous cycle 
of getting safety, quality, and experience right that drives trust, growth, financial, and, and the like. And so uh, I'm just blessed with a wonderful leader that speaks that currency all the time. And people get it. I mean, they it does. It penetrates through the whole organization. Um, folks know what we're focused on. They absolutely know it's more important than that financial crunch that we're under. Yes, we all have those headwinds as well, but they absolutely prioritize the safety piece of that. So it is, it's really important. We talked about our tiered huddles in, uh, and mentioned it in the article, and, and that's another way we show that we're attentive to that. So our tiered huddles, we have six tiered huddles. Maybe Dr. Yearian talked about this. She did. She, she sure did. Big, big creator of this. And, um, the beauty of those is they start with all the safety things. Anything that harmed a patient, any time we could have lost trust in a patient experience, that's what we talk about at each tier. Um, and our tier six is, you know, pretty much every day, uh, for at least four to five days a week, our CEO leads that. Um, so that talks to you about being being there, being present. Sure. Uh, moving on, you, you say that Vulnerability is your superpower as a leader in a high reliability organization. And you talk about the, uh, you know, doing failure bows and, and, and talk to us a little bit how important it is for a leader to to admit his or her mistakes and to uh, how that how the people that you're trying to lead, how they view that and, and, and how that appears to them, because sometimes we think, OK, I, we have to be invincible. You know, I don't you know, I didn't make a mistake. You know, mm-hmm. that was somebody else's mistake. Yeah, it's so natural for us to want to do that and um, certainly have lived those years where <laughs> I did not want to you know, be that leader that kind of let my shield down and. Um, but I realized like it just couldn't we couldn't get trust together. We couldn't move the ball down the field at all um, on solving anything if we didn't show some vulnerability. So, um, gosh, a few years ago, my team I was leading at the time, they were wonderful. And you learn more from your team than you bring to your team often as a leader. And um, they mentioned this failure bow. And so we started doing it. And, um, you know, of course, I did it as a leader, but everyone would do it when they either didn't have their data right or, you know, they said something and we would just it got we got in a habit of physically standing up and taking a bow and then everybody else clapped. And it was if you there's there's some articles on it. I I encourage you to read it. It's a very simple tool to create uh, the environment for that psychological safety that we keep talking about. And also, um, it's a way to humanize it, I guess, uh, and to create that learning space to say, okay, we can fail, we can bounce back, we can fail quickly and, and do it. So uh, learning was so important when it comes to the vulnerability piece. And I, I think it's a key, um, key characteristic for leaders, though I don't see a lot of leaders doing it. Next, you talk about the five whys and uh, how important it is in you know, when you're trying to get to the root cause uh, of a problem, asking why five times to get to the true cause. But you also talk about how, you know, that is also you, you bring up uh, Dr. Shine in, in that point and how, you know, asking the questions, how that does show show humility. Talk to talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad you've had him on the show as well. Um 
You know, this is one of the skills in the Just Culture Decision Tree that you may want to use both professionally and personally. We were talking about our families just a minute ago. And I'll tell you, if, if I could use the five whys with my kids and husband, I would be probably a much better <laughs> mom and wife. Um, and but t- uh, typically, I only use like one why, and then that gets me into trouble. Um, sure. and, same for, and same professionally, right? So we um, need to ask uh, deeper questions. This prevents that oversimplification that we talked about earlier. And like Skip said, these are all interrelated. Um, and truly not only getting to the, uh, the root cause, but giving it due diligence to think through it and ask what would be driving a, a human being to act like this or to do this or have this behavior. And so it's been a very powerful tool. I learned it from our, our risk management leadership and uh, use it quite a lot in life. And I hope everyone else does. And like I said, it's should that in the just culture decision tree. You should take that and use that at home as well. Really important. Well, Dr. Jureko, out of curiosity, let me let me hit a little more on that number eight, that asking why five times, because I love that you uh, referenced my, my good friend, uh, Dr. Shine. You know, one of the things that we did, uh, and I'd be interested if, if you have found this in your own uh, uh, role, is, and I know that Dr. Mason won't care me, me bringing this up on our podcast, but as we practice tumble inquiry, and we learned about the different types of inquiry. I remember that I was with Dr. Mason the day when he when he discovered, well, this is a little tougher than we thought. And he said, you know, I think what I may be doing, Skip, is what they would call diagnostic inquiry. And I said, well, well, tell me more. He said, well, Skip, as a physician, I diagnose you, then I tell you what you need to do to get better. And now that I've moved into a role of leadership, I find myself sometimes diagnosing you and telling you what to go do. Did, did I represent that right, Dr. Mason? Yeah, you did it perfectly. Perfect. Have you ever found that out of curiosity, Dr. Greco? All the time. Yeah, I'm glad we're not alone. I'm sure everybody's probably nodding as they're listening to this and agreeing. Absolutely, all the time. I mean, how many times do we catch ourselves, whether we're time, the time pressure, where we're, we're asking and then telling right away? <laughs> it's just like, there's no humble. The word humble has gone away. It's just That's inquiry right. and tell. Um, right. So That's absolutely. Right. Um, and it, it does, I, I find it happens a lot when we're time pressured, right? And which we all are, um, that we just want to jump right to it and don't do the, the significant, you know, five whys or asking deeper questions and doing it in a way that gives that safe space. And what, I, what I noticed that I do sometimes that I'm trying to break is I do a, I do a, I lead the witness, right? So oh, yeah. this is what you're seeing, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. And I'm not really asking a question that I don't know the answer right. to. I'm asking a question that I already know, and I'm trying to lead you, and I'm trying to break that uh, that bad habit. But we'll, we'll move on to number nine, Dr. Mason. I'll let you no, move no, us on. Number nine, you say, uh, you say stories are great, but stories with data are better. And, you know, we – I love telling stories. You know, and and I love telling stories to try to get people to to act a certain way or or to change a behavior or to help help motivate people. But, you know, without the data behind it to back it up, uh, you know, you're you're just going with your gut. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about that. And it, it's vice versa. Right. It's it's the story and the data together that make it key. And really good leaders, you've seen them or heard them do this. They can bring a passionate story and then bring in the data, even if it's a couple simple data points, 
Um, and that just paints a picture so much, uh, so much more deeply than just doing one or the other. The thing that scares me about just doing stories, love stories, of course, so we love safety moments, love safety stories, but it really is usually an N of one. And so what I get, and this is that interrelated, we've get the story and then the reactive leader and we put the story and the reactive leader together and we mix those together. <laughs> what do you get? You get a big like explosion of action that actually may be on the wrong thing. And so it worries me a little bit when we're doing in stories in isolation because of that reactivity to want to go fix it. And yes, we want to go fix it, but if we don't see the data to know if it's a true problem, um, and, and then it, then we could just get off course. And then with the data, you got to have stories or analysis with that. And I know it's hard to get data in healthcare, and we always want more of it. We always need more insights and analysis. But having that data without a story of a human to humanize it and about a patient and family or a caregiver, that also falls flat. So the combination is really the key. It makes me think of the quote from Dr. Dimming, uh, in God we trust and all others bring data. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That is, <laughs> that so is good. Oh, yeah, he's got and, so many. Let's, let's move to the 10th and we'll, final and we'll, one. We'll, we'll, and Skip, we'll get to finish it up. We didn't think we were going to be able to get through all 10, <laughs> but it looks like we're going to. Uh, finally, you talk about commit to proper, to proper change management. And you know, how important is it to to communicate change and to, as you, you talk about uh, Dr. Deming's uh, in, in the, his theory of profound knowledge, how we need to recognize that, system, you know, that we're all interrelated and that one change is gonna, may affect other people. And, and, and sometimes we don't do a real good job at that. Yeah, we have to, yeah, we have to force ourselves to, and again, I say this because I've had so many failure bows in this in this realm. We have to force ourselves, especially as physician leaders, um, to take a step back and think it through um, because of the complex system we talked about earlier. Um, but also because you could actually harm. I mean, you could create more harm with some of the changes we make. And so it's really so important to um, not just put it on paper, but to drive ourselves to simulate it to like actually go out and do it and figure out before we switch the button or, or do what we're gonna do with a team that we go out and do a deeper analysis of it and then bring everybody along with you. All the stakeholders communicate to the front line up, down and around as many times as you can before you do it. It is hard work, but it pays off in the end. Um, and that goes back to kind of probably Dr. Mason, you and I just wanting to go out and like solve the problem go slow to go fast is one of those terms I try to remind myself in big change management things. And uh, my team reminds me often too. <laughs> yeah. One of the big points that our, that JR tells us is to, to always tell people in advance about things that, that, that are going to, that are going to, or could possibly affect them. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to do that on, on the front than it is to uh, try to apologize and explain on the back end for sure. Well, Dr. Dreco, I cannot tell you how thankful I am that you joined us. We're so appreciative of your leadership and, and the work that you're doing at Cleveland Clinic. And I would highly recommend our listeners to, I know you can go out there on LinkedIn and just search 10 leadership mindsets for high reliability organizations. I remember when I first read it, 
there were many people all through LinkedIn that were praising the article. And so I would highly recommend that you go out there and look at that. And just on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare, Dr. Dreco, just thank you so much for your leadership and thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Skip. Thank you, Dr. Mason, for all of what you do to keep our patients safe and have a great healthcare journey. And to all of our listeners, we're in this together. So we sure. have to like help each other get better every day and take care of ourselves. So thank you to each of you that are listening today. And thank you, Dr. Jureka.